can afford anything, but not everything. Every choice that you make is a trade-off against something else, and that doesn't just apply to your money. That applies to your time, your focus, your energy, your attention, anything in your life that is a scarce or limited resource. And that opens up two questions. First, what matters most? And second, how do you align your day-to-day decision-making to reflect that? Answering those two questions is a lifetime practice, and that is what this podcast is here to explore. My name is Paula Pant. I am the host of the Afford Anything podcast. Every other episode-ish, we answer questions that come from you, the community. And today, former financial planner Joe Saul Sihai joins me to answer these questions. What's up, Joe? Former-ish financial planner. (laughs) (laughs) Former-ish. I just always like the ish uh, there. Like the asterisk after every other episode, asterisk. <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm just, some. the reality is I'm not that methodical. Like I'm, I'm a big picture thinker. I'm, I'm good with concepts. I'm good with ideas. I'm good at long-term big picture thinking. When it comes to daily execution of details, it's not my jam. And so as much as I try to stick to a rhythm, that rhythm sometimes gets thrown. But just like how many times have you and I told people you need to stay flexible, have some flexible money, have flexibility in your planning. Exactly. You don't need to be held to every other episode. I mean, pretty soon I'm going to take over. It'll be every episode. What? I'm good with that. <laughs> Are you planning a hostile takeover of the Afford Anything podcast? <laughs> Welcome to Afford Anything. <laughs> That'd be a weird day. No, 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 please no. Please no. I don't want it. So here are the questions that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Jake and his wife want to retire in five years, at which point they will, at the time of their retirement, they will be 14 years away from being able to access their 401k funds. So Jake wants to know how can they bridge that gap? Kim has an employer who enrolled all employees into a fully funded indemnity program. What the heck does that mean? We're going to talk about that. Matthew is torn. He and his wife are both 26, and they want to know if they should max out their Roth IRAs and then save up for a rental property, or vice versa, should they save for the rental first and worry about the Roth IRAs later. Deva and her husband are fed up with their messy tenants, so what should they do? And burnt out in Boston wants to take a mini retirement. How Can they do that? We're going to answer all of these questions in today's episode, starting with Burnt Out in Boston. Hi, Paula. This is Burnt Out in Boston. I've been a big fan of the podcast for a few years now, and I am a recent grad who finished my bachelor's to master's program in a matter of four years in the spring of 2019. I was working inside hustling for the majority of the time that it took me to finish my degrees. And I've now been in the workforce for about a year and a half. I make $70,000 and I'm 24 years old. And I'm working a pretty demanding biotech career. Ever since I discovered the FIRE movement through your interview with Mrs. Frugalwoods a few years ago, my intention was to reach financial independence as soon as possible. But I'm now realizing that since I've been working on overdrive nonstop for basically my entire life since I was a teenager, I should probably take your advice and do a mini retirement before I completely burn myself out. But the problem is I'm not really sure how to swing this. So I guess I'm asking for help on how to adjust my mindset and my goals to make room for a mini retirement. Also, if you could point me maybe towards some calculators for mini retirements, 
I really can only find calculators for reaching actual FI or maybe just, I don't know, some ways that I can run through my numbers and make sure that I'm going to be financially ready to make this move. So some more details if it helps are I try to keep my cost of living very low by staying with family. This arrangement might not be doable in the long term. So I currently have a six month emergency fund, which includes what my rent were to be if I was to move out, but stay in the area renting plus a first, last, and security deposit in case I needed to make that move kind of unexpectedly. I have about $40,000 in federal student loans, and I am about to pay off my car, which I expect to last me many more years. And I'm also saving up for a house hack, both as a vehicle for reaching financial independence, but also as a way to keep my cost of living very low because, you know, hopefully if I have renters, then I won't have to make the mortgage payment out of my own pocket. I could take it out of the rental income. But the properties in my area are very expensive, so that might take a little while. So I really hope that you have some advice for me, and I really look forward to hearing back from you. Thank you. Burnt out. First of all, Huge congratulations on being 24 years old and earning $70,000 a year. That's an incredible income at any age, but particularly to earn that income at the age of 24, that speaks good things for your lifetime earning potential. When you're making 70 grand at the age of 24, you are on track for excellent earnings over the course of the next 40 years. So, Big, big congratulations to you for starting on such strong footing. Now, you are interested in taking a mini retirement. What I would recommend is first decide where you want to live slash where, plural, you want to live if you plan on being in multiple locations during that mini retirement time. And the reason that I say that is because the cost of living that you will encounter during your mini retirement will differ depending on whether you take this mini retirement in Boston versus in Laos or Cambodia or Thailand. Decide what location you want to be in at the time of the mini retirement. From that, read blogs, listen to podcasts, read books from people who specifically who have retired or mini retired in those particular locations so that you can get a solid grasp on what your cost of living in that location might be. Again, with that caveat that your cost of living in a place like, even if you look at Thailand, your cost of living in a place like Bangkok is going to be very different than your cost of living if you were to go all the way out to Koh Samui. So depending on where you want to stay during the span of that mini retirement, figure out what a reasonable cost of living is, and then calculate that that per day cost out for the duration of the mini retirement, you know, your per day cost multiplied by 180 days if it's a six month mini retirement. And then you'll, you'll know what amount of money you're shooting for. So you asked about calculators. I wouldn't worry about any type of formal calculator. I would figure out location specific. What's going to be the cost of living in that area multiplied by the amount of time that you want to be in that area. Now you know your goal. And from that goal, you work backwards towards how to save up that amount of money. When it comes to, you asked about purchasing a house hack, 
I wouldn't worry about that until after your mini retirement is finished. One goal at a time. Right now, your goal is focus on saving up enough money that you can go into that next adventure. Once that next adventure is done, you can then switch gears and focus on real estate. I think it depends on how far away that is, though, Paula, because you know, a lot of what we're going to talk about this week in these questions, the theme people I think are going to hear is the trade-offs that you have when you make investment decisions. And when you're 24 years old, for most 24-year-olds, you and I would say, let's invest for the long term, right? Let's look at 50 years old, 55 years old, uh, 60 years old. Let's use the heck out of tax shelters. But really, if Burnt Out in Boston wants to have flexibility the house hack and being able to bring in maybe some income today can number one, make that stay longer and also make a cash flow lifestyle come about easier on a more quick time frame. But the problem is, is when you do that, when you decide that you want to build cash flow and take the cash flow from a, let's say it's a rental empire. Now you're then giving up the growth because you're eating it. You're living off of it. So, I think I'd step back and think about the goal. If if that goal of the sabbatical is far enough away that you could do the house hack first and have it partially funded, fantastic. I think that would be really cool. See, I would disagree, Joe. I would not buy that house hack prior to the mini retirement because, as you know, when you buy a property, particularly one that you yourself are going to be living in, there are all kinds of expenses that come up. Things that you never anticipated, particularly if it's your first home. All of a sudden, for the first time in your life, you need a lawnmower and you need a gardening hose and you need window treatments. Those types of expenses, the weekly Home Depot run of home buying, even if you try to do it as frugally as possible, that type of stuff is inevitable. I'm not sure how much money a person would be able to save or or how many costs they would be able to offset if they were to purchase their own home, uh, assuming that the mini retirement takes place elsewhere. So you're saying that there's no income generation machine? Correct. Yeah. If you're house hacking into a place, then you've basically got your own place that's sitting vacant. You know, you, let's say you get a duplex, you rent out one side. If it's your first year of owning that duplex, then technically you are supposed to live there. And certainly there's no restriction that says that you can't go to Thailand while you're living there, but you, at a minimum, can't rent it out for the first year of ownership because it's your primary residence. How, but that's exactly my point, is how far away is this sabbatical? It all depends. If the sabbatical can be pushed off beyond that time frame, and she can get in that sooner and get past that time I think she might have an opportunity, but it also it also makes me wonder and want to explore more what this says about her lifestyle later. Because when I hear burnt out in Boston's age, I think if you're burnt out at 24 years old, there's a good chance that you want to have this freedom lifestyle. You're that this is you that you want to have this ability to do this again and again and again. So if that's the case, then she's still going to build a different type of a portfolio than somebody who's like, listen, I love working at X place. Let's, let's use tech. I, I might not, I might look at the portfolio differently if I'm her and figure out how to create that income generating machine that can make me be able to take off whenever I choose. I think if you're 24 and you're asking about a mini retirement right now, 
And again, I don't know what her goals are as far as how far into the future she wants to take this. Sure. But better to take it sooner than later. And if you buy a home and then you have to live there for a year, you're delaying that mini retirement. You know, she might I be. I do agree with that. I totally agree yeah, with that. Yeah, exactly. I don't want her to be 26, 27. And then, like, you know, what happens? A parent gets sick or a sibling gets sick or there's a, an unexpected relationship. Like life happens and the game plan for traveling gets pulled away. An, a second pandemic breaks out, right? Oh, Any- shut up. <laughs> Stop. Stop. You are pure evil. Anything can happen. And I don't want, you know, there's a big difference between traveling at 24 versus traveling at 30. Not to say one is better or worse than the other, but they're different. It is totally different. Yeah. We know when she was talking about calculators, I thought, and this is the former financial planner in me, I thought she was talking about what impact will that have on my retirement. And Ah. for that, you need a more robust calculator. Like if I'm not putting money toward my long-term stuff for a year, for whatever amount of time, like what does that do? And the, the more casual calculators, to her point, will not do that. And maybe I'm overthinking the question, but there are a lot of people that might have that question. So I'll tell you the place that I like to go and look at uh, different calculators and they do a great job of comparing calculators is the website. Can I retire Darrow? And I think, you know, these guys, Paula, mm-hmm. both Darrow and Chris are great thinkers, do fantastic work. Get really nerdy. There's a ton of different calculators there and you can compare and contrast them and find one that is uh, robust enough that it can show you not adding to those funds maybe for 12 months and see what that does to your long longer term money goals. Hmm. That is a very financial planner assumption around what she meant (laughs) by calculators. It totally was. You were halfway through your thing and you're like, you don't need a calculator. I'm like, yeah, I think Paula's right. (laughs) <laughs> I, I think that was the nerd coming out. Am I on my end? Yep. Overthought that one. In terms of figuring out that cost per day, Matt Kepnes, who goes by the internet name Nomadic Matt, he has written a book on traveling for $50 a day. And he, beyond the enticing title of that book, has a wealth of information, no pun intended, on how to travel at X number of dollars per day in different locations. So he'll talk about traveling in Latin America or Europe or Southeast Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa for X amount of money per day. And so if you're looking for info on travel costs in different locations for your mini retirement, uh, I would recommend starting with him, Nomadic Matt. And we will link to both Can I Retire Yet and Nomadic Matt, as well as any other resource that we mentioned in this episode. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Show notes are available at affordanything.com slash episode 306. Thank you, Burnt Out in Boston, for asking that question and enjoy your mini retirement. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies 
that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, so what are some of the next really big goals that you're saving for? Maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. Maybe you're saving to buy your next car in cash or to at least make a pretty big down payment on your next car. Maybe you're saving for a kid's college fund or for your own college fund. Well, there's an app called Monarch that makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. In fact, the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com Paula. Monarch has a very simple, intuitive design. They have loads of built-in features that help you collaborate with your spouse or partner, with your financial advisor. You, know, you can invite them to your account at no extra cost. They'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. You can customize it to look exactly like you want it to look like. You can customize the types of notifications that you get. You know, I've set mine up so that I only see the big ticket stuff. I personally don't want to see the little things. I just want to see big ticket items. So I've set up my notifications accordingly, but you can do it however you prefer. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can make it your own. And Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Paula for your extended 30-day free trial. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search, it's to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform that has over 350 million global monthly visitors. It allows you to schedule, screen, and message so that you can connect with candidates faster. And beyond just hiring faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, which means Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Whenever I hire somebody inside of Afford Anything, I'm doing so because we are already overloaded with work. We have way too much on our plates, and so we need to hire so that somebody can start taking some of that stuff off of our plates. But hiring itself is added workload on top of already busy workload. So it's great to have a platform like Indeed that helps you hire faster and find higher quality matches. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our next question comes from Matthew. Hey, Paula. Would love your opinion and possibly Joe's because I think y'all may differ. So my question is to max out a Roth IRA and then save cash for a rental property or just save cash for the rental and worry about a Roth later. 
So some background information, my wife and I are 26 years old, make around $100,000 a year, and can save between $2,500 and $3,000 per month. This year, we got married and bought a duplex, which we're house hacking, living in one side, running out the other. So our cash is drained to $20,000, which is our current emergency fund that we do not want to touch. We currently have $82,500 in retirement savings, which is between her 401k, both of our Roth IRAs, a deferred compensation plan, and my pension because I work for my state. I have a finance degree, so when I run the numbers, without adding any more to our retirement savings, it could be anywhere between $700,000 and $1.2 million, depending on interest rates in our future. We bought this duplex Everything's going fantastic, which is really itching for making us want another property. Um, The goal is for cash flow each month, so work becomes optional at some point. I enjoy my job. I don't mind working. My wife is a nurse and is very stressed out with her work, so eventually she does want to stop. And so we're just looking for the rental properties to add cash flow to us each month to where work becomes less burdensome. That being said, we can only save between thirty and $35,000 per year, and if we do our Roths, that's going to take away a solid chunk of that money. So bouncing back and forth between is it worth skipping a Roth to get our rental properties now in order to have the cash flow, or is the Roth IRA super important for our retirement future? Thanks so much. Matthew, first of all, thank you so much for calling in and congratulations on everything that you're doing. Congratulations on the house hack. Congratulations on both you and your wife setting yourself up for an amazing financial future ahead. You're 26 and you are already in such a great spot. You've set up a strong financial foundation and you're continuing to build on that. So huge congrats to you for everything that you've done and everything you are continuing to do. I love your question. Fundamentally, the question is, Roth IRA versus rental property, which should you prioritize? And anytime that there is a question about what should be the priority, I like to zoom out and ask the question, what is the goal? To paraphrase Joe, you all, Joe, you always say, start with the end in mind. I guess that's not a paraphrase. That's a quote. <laughs> but you always say, start with the end in mind, which is something that you picked up from Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which, by the way, is one of my favorite books as well. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Starting with the end in mind is another way of zooming out and asking, all right, what's the ultimate goal here? What are we trying to accomplish? In your case... Matthew, as you've described, you want to set yourself up for financial independence, financial freedom, greater financial flexibility. To that end, it seems to me, and and I don't want to tell you what to do because there are, of course, pros and cons to prioritizing either one, and I can sit here and make an argument for either option, and I will add the caveat Both of them are really good options. So whichever you prioritize, whether it's the Roth IRA or the rental property, you're choosing between two excellent choices. So there's no wrong answer here. With that being said, if the goal is financial independence at a younger age, a rental property will serve that purpose in that it gives you cash flow. You know, uh, the returns on a rental are biased towards cash flow. 
It also gives you greater financial flexibility because of the fact that it's not in a tax-advantaged account, which means that you don't deal with the government restrictions that come from putting money into a tax-advantaged account. I say that with the asterisk that Roth IRAs do certainly give you a lot of flexibility. You can draw down the principal on that at any point, interest-free and penalty-free. So among all of the various types of tax-advantaged retirement accounts, Roth IRAs are arguably one of the most flexible and friendly ones, probably tied with the HSA in that regard. But still, a rental property, because of the fact that it is not a tax-advantaged account, gives you even greater flexibility. It gives you returns that are biased in the form of the dividend or income stream that it pays out. And it will build your retirement portfolio, but it will do so in a much more cash flow friendly and flexible manner. Now, that being said, the way that I tend to think not just of Roth IRAs, but of all retirement accounts in general is I don't think of them as quote unquote retirement in the traditional sense of the word. I think of it as a deal between you and the government in which the government says, we will give you a tax advantage on this investment in exchange for you giving us the promise that you will not access this money until you reach a certain age. And so I don't think of it as retirement in the cessation of work sense of the word. I simply think of it as a trade-off of tax advantage in exchange for an age-related limitation to access to that money. I think this is another example of uh, trade-offs like we talked about last time. And, and that's actually, of course, Matthew's direct question. What, is this trade worth it? And the answer, Paula, I think is exactly what you said, which is begin with the end in mind. And if your goal is to create a cash flow empire and make your life easier as you work, I don't, th- I don't think the Roth IRA can do that. But I think that for us money nerds, I think sometimes we get a little FOMO about the, about the <laughs> fact that I'm going to miss out on all these cool – and they're totally cool – these really awesome advantages that the Roth gives us. Mm. And I don't want to miss that. And yeah, yeah, you're going to miss out on some of that. But you know what? I would rather miss out on a cool tax tool than miss out on flexibility in my life to do what I want to do, which you can hear in his voice how that is exciting to him. So I'll take more life over cool tax break any day. Exactly. I was uh Talking to um, the FI couple, Ali and Josh, on Instagram, we did an interview yesterday. They talked about, you know how on this podcast we always say, don't let the tax tail wag the investment dog? Sure. So expanding out of that, don't let the math tail wag the life dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. My favorite is my goal in life is to have Bill Gates tax bill. Right. Like that is my goal. Because if I have a zero tax bill, I might have great shelters, but there's a better chance that I just don't have any money. So if I could have Bezos' tax bill, I'll take it. Well, Bezos actually is a famous Amazon, at least. I don't know about Bezos specifically as an individual, but Amazon is famous for not having a tax bill. I know. Well, (laughs) I guess if I could have Amazon's tax bill, 
<laughs> have my cake and eat it too. I guess I'll take that one over everybody. Yeah. So maybe that's Matthew's question. Can I be like Amazon? No, you cannot. <laughs> exactly. Upper middle class problems. That's right. Thank you, Matthew, for asking that question. And again, I'll just emphasize you're choosing between two great options. So there's no wrong answer here. There's no wrong I choice. There I think there is. Really? I I, yes, you think the I, Roth IRA is the wrong answer? Like, I think that based on what he says he wants to do, the Roth IRA is the wrong answer. Wow. Don't do it. Step away from the Roth, man. Whoa. See, I take your hand off the rock. <laughs> See, I, Joe, you and I are in agreement that we both, if we were in his shoes, would go the direction of the rental property. But I still say he's going to win either way. Either way, even if he puts his money into a Roth IRA, that money is going to do way more for him than it would if he were putting that money into buying booze and cigarettes. So either way, He's investing it in a smart, strategic manner, and that is a recipe for success. That's why I say he can't lose either way. Is this where I say agreed? <laughs> Joe's like, no, buy the booze and cigarettes. I know, booze and cigarettes. Come on. <laughs> I don't know about the cigarettes. I'm not online. I don't know. Not for me. Not for me. Not for me might, either. Might be for him. Booze, well, once in a while. The Afford Anything podcast does not condone spending your... <laughs> Investment money. So before we go totally off the rails, thank you, Matthew, for asking that question. And I'm Joe, I am going to reiterate, I don't think that he can make a wrong choice. As long as he puts the money in either a Roth or a rental, it's the right choice no matter what. Matthew, we know who's right. <laughs> can, I guess, can I make a plug in that case? If I'm going to be cast as wrong on my own show, then I'm going to make a plug for my real estate investing course. If you are going to invest in real estate, I've got a course for that. <laughs> it's called Your First Rental Property. <laughs> you have a link to that in the show notes page. Oh, good idea. To the pre, yeah. Yeah, to the, to the uh, what do you call the pre-sale, the sign up, the um, waiting oh, list? The waiting list, the waiting list, the VIP list. Actually, we've got a free ebook. It's called Seven Mistakes, Expensive Mistakes, because uh, ebooks do better when you have an adjective oh. prior to the verb. <laughs> So they're not just seven mistakes, they're seven expensive mistakes. Awful. That mistake. real estate investors make. So yeah, we've got a we've got a free one that you can download at affordanything.com slash mistakes. Matthew's like, this is a mistake to call in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we're not off the rails at all. All right. Let's move on to our next question, which comes from Jake. Hi, Paula. My name is Jake, and I have a question regarding uh, early retirement and asset allocation as we approach that number. Here are some quick facts about me. My wife and I uh, plan to retire in 2026. At that point, I will be 45 and she will be 46. We've been fortunate enough to have great jobs and uh, have built up nice 401ks that will continue to build. So we really don't need to touch that money until age 59 and a half. And at that point, we're confident that what's left in there after it's grown, we'll be able to carry us through the rest of our retirement. So what I'm really focused on is that first 14 years between when we say goodbye to work and hit that 59 and a half. So here's some facts about what we have access to in our taxable accounts. So we have about 500,000 in a taxable brokerage that's at about a 90% equity, 10% fixed income ratio. It's mostly in VTSAX for equities and VTBLX for bonds. 
We contribute between 80000 and 100000 a year and plan into that taxable account and plan to continue to do that for the next five years. Another way we have access to cash is through restricted stock units that both of us earn through work as part of our compensation. Right now, we have about 235000 at present value in stock. Now, we always sell whatever units vest once per year and move that over into our taxable account just to reduce the risk of being overly indexed in one company. Assuming a conservative 5% annual return, I figure we'll have around $1.2 million uh, when we retire in our taxable brokerage. And this doesn't include any stock uh, that we'll have left and be able to either keep for the dividend or sell as we move through our early retirement. We also plan to save about $150,000 in cash towards the end of our working career. And we'll use that to pay ourselves uh, should there be a bear market or the market dips uh, during retirement. So my question is, as we inch towards that 2026 date and towards our FI number, I'm wondering how and when I should start increasing exposure to fixed income in those taxable accounts and where to put that money. So as we're putting more money into our taxable brokerage, rather than just that 90 to 10 split, should I start buying more bonds? If so, what types of bonds? I'm really trying to understand how we can limit tax implications in our early retirement and set ourselves up for success for the long term so that we're not having to sell equities in a down market that we can sell bonds or some other way to make income until the market rises again. At that point, I'm familiar with rebalancing as we go. I'm just really uncertain about that first portion of early retirement and what our asset allocation should look like. Any help you can provide would be great. Thanks and love the show. Thanks, Jake, for that question. This is the hardest problem in financial planning for me. I don't think when it, well, not in all of financial planning, there are, there are very difficult problems, but when it comes to particularly in asset allocation, this is the biggest problem and it's an even bigger problem right now. And I'll just define why. And then I'll tell you in my head what I think the trade-offs are. So I grew up in West Michigan. There were a ton of farms. So I think in terms of farming analogies, when you're investing for the long term, you plant these investments that historically just look back 10 or 15 years that are going to beat inflation, right? What consistently wins in that time frame? And equities and real estate are the two things that you invest in that do that. The North American re-index and the S&P 500, fairly similar results over long periods of time uh, with actually a fairly similar risk measure as well. So getting there, stocks or real estate, preferably probably both, is my favorite way to consistently historically have done that. But when you run under 10 years, now you start to get into this mushy period. When we get to, it's like one to five years, really cash is king because do you want to destroy the goal? And even bonds could do that. I mean, if we look at bonds and risk reward on the top end of the risk pyramid will have junk bonds, which are these high interest rate bonds to companies that have a lot of debt. On the bottom, we'll have short duration and government bonds. You could go with short duration bonds. I don't think there's a lot of risk there. But I also take a look right now specifically at the climate that we're in, where interest rates a few weeks ago began to climb and a lot of people, when you fought, not even a lot of people, just the, the, the way bonds work, 
when interest rates rise, the value of bonds fall. So if I tell you to build a bond portfolio, which historically, by the way, would be really cool to do for that five to 10 year time frame. If I told you to do that now, I think that a lot of people listening to this who know money will say, I'm telling you to lose money. And there's a piece of me that says that there's more danger of that than ever before. Why? Because interest rates are lower than they've been. Mm -hmm. And when people tell me, oh my goodness, interest rates now are high because they're in the threes. <laughs> right. <laughs> we got interest rates in the sevens or eights. So the risk of losing money is much worse there. Now, a lot of people in the bond market will tell you a lot of people like me knowing that have already built in a lot of that risk because bonds haven't done a ton. So, so my answer, Paul, is I don't know. I think we're in a really uncertain time for bonds. Bonds are the textbook answer for the five to 10 year time frame. I accept, and I like your numbers, by the way, Jake, I love the fact, you know, I was, I was trying to do the math on your numbers, 1.2 million in your brokerage account based on interest rates, based on the way you're saving. I love the fact that that's a very conservative number about what you're going to build. So as long as you're comfortable with conservative numbers, I would say the responsible answer for me to give you would be to keep your durations short on your bonds and accept the fact that you're setting this money aside so you hit the goal and just accept that it's not going to earn a lot of money. I think it's very enticing to go chasing yield and people do it all the time and people lose that game all the time. So it's usually my least favorite time frame to look at, Paula, because you're rolling dice with that five to 10 year time frame more than anywhere else. But I feel like now, especially now, you're rolling the dice more than ever. Right. I agree with that. Jake, when I think about your situation, in my head, I'm that 14 year gap of time that you are trying to bridge between when you retire to when you turn 59 and a half. In my mind, I'm breaking down those 14 years into three different buckets the zero to five year, the five to 10 year, and the 10 to 15 year, or technically 10 to 14 year. And in my mind, each of those buckets will have a different asset allocation and a different mix of investments. The zero to five year bucket is the one that should be heavily tilted towards cash or cash equivalents. And so any money that's within that zero to five year bucket, you know, I, I love what you're talking about, about having the $150,000 that you are just going to keep in outright cash. Beyond that, Ginny Mays, high yield savings accounts, laddered CDs, although those aren't paying anything these days, anything that is a cash equivalent or a conservative asset, such as Ginny Mays, I, I think those are appropriate for that zero to five year time horizon. That 10 to 15 year time horizon, by contrast, I would throw that right into VTSAX or some other broad market index fund equivalent, if it were me. Because that's a long enough time frame that if it all were to get sliced in half six months after you retire, you would still have between 10 to 15 years to wait out that recovery. And you wouldn't have to turn paper losses into real losses. The hardest bucket to manage is, as you said, Joe, that five to 10 year time frame. And for that, 
Joe, I'm on the same page as you. If bonds were a better option in a different environment, that might be where I would lean. Given that that's not a solid option right now, I might take that five to 10 year bucket and sort of split it between the two, you know, treat half of it in the same way that you treat the zero to five year and treat the other half of it in the way that you treat the 10 to 15 year. I tend to agree with you. I think diversification here is your friend. Because I also think that when you're, and I, I, I don't really love this analogy, but we hear it all the time, landing the plane, right? When we're landing the plane, we're trying to harvest our investment. I like harvest the investment better. I'll go with that one. <laughs> um, when you're trying to harvest it, I think that having several different trees to pull from and being able to choose at the time which one is ripe is going to be a better strategy that will help you win the day. But I look at even Ginny Mays right now, Paula, as you and I record this, you know, Morningstar has this fantastic, and you know what a fan I am of, of Ginny Mays and most time, most time frames, I think you, I think the risk level in Ginny Mays is so, so low. And yet I'm looking at a growth chart on Ginny Mays and, and at the midpoint last year, uh, $10,000 invested at the start of 2012 had grown all the way up to uh, looks like roughly $13,000 and now it's back below $12,100. I mean, that's, that's a lot of loss for something that historically doesn't lose much money. The good news is, and this has been the positive on Ginny Mays, is that uh, you've got such a nice dividend coming in that if you don't need it right now and just keep reinvesting that dividend, that type of a loss you can fairly quickly make up. But even in the Ginny May market, the rate at which that's been descending lately just gives me pause because I feel like we're just on the front end of this uh, interest rate change. Mm. One thing that I will say, and I'm going to add a lot of caution and a lot of caveats, lots of asterisks and disclaimers here. But one thing that could be worth investigating for a small portion of your portfolio are stablecoin investments. So there are cryptocurrency trading platforms, including Voyager, which is the one that I've looked into the most, that have a stablecoin, which unlike a cryptocurrency, is a volatility-free stable valuation coin. So a crypto such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, any of the various cryptocurrencies, they're, they're highly volatile. Stablecoins, by contrast, are designed to be volatility-free. And there are three different forms. There are fiat collateralized stablecoins, which means that they maintain a fiat currency reserve, such as the US dollar. And so, for example, USDC has a one-to-one -one ratio. So for every one USDC, there is one US dollar. And so that one-to-one -one ratio of fiat currency creates that collateralization that gives USDC a lack of volatility in terms of its stablecoin valuation. Those fiat collateralized stablecoins are one of three different categories of stablecoins. There are also crypto collateralized stablecoins, which, which I would not recommend going into at all because by the very nature of the thing that's collateralizing them is volatile in and of itself. And there are also non-collateralized stablecoins. And again, I would not recommend those at all for, I, I, I think, for reasons that are abundantly apparent just in the name alone. Yeah, but if he times those ones right, Paula, he'll make a killing. 
<laughs> I know that, that was a joke. I was just being funny. So of those three different forms of stablecoin, the only one that I would recommend looking further into would be the fiat collateralized form. And again, I will not go so far, at least as of right now, as of March 2021, based on my limited knowledge of the crypto market and the stablecoin market, I am not yet ready to go far enough as recommending them, but I will give a nod to looking further into it and doing some due diligence because stablecoin, and again, I'll use USDC on the Voyager platform as an example, is potentially a method or opportunity for receiving potentially strong returns in a low volatility asset. The reason that I use Voyager as an example, the reason that I keep referencing it is I've I am admittedly quite new to the world of learning about cryptocurrencies, and Voyager is the platform that I've been playing around on with a small portion of my own portfolio. Um, so I've invested in the publicly traded stock of that particular platform, the, the actual trading platform itself, and I've purchased some Voyager token, which is the crypto that's associated and issued by that platform in and of itself. So that's, that's my disclosure as to, you know, any affiliation that I have with them, which is just as a member of the public, investing a little bit of my own money there in my nascent efforts to learn about it. And I myself just made my very first stable coin purchase a couple of weeks ago. So again, that world has its own underlying risks, but the fact that some stable coins, not all, are collateralized by fiat currency reserves, such as the US dollar, inherently creates an environment of lower volatility as compared to other stable coins that are collateralized either by cryptocurrencies or not collateralized at all. The other aspect of this question is that I am approaching this answer with the assumption that Jake is not interested in any type of real estate investing. And I make that assumption because, you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I don't want to push anybody into real estate investing if they are not interested in doing it. And certainly Jake can have a great retirement without it. So I am basing my answer entirely on the assumption that he doesn't want to invest in real estate and he doesn't want to put his money into other illiquid types of assets, such as investing in private companies. So based on those two assumptions, the three buckets of zero to five years, five to 10 years, and 10 to 15 years with various types of market-related publicly traded investments that fit into each of those buckets, that is the premise upon which I am making my answer. Thank you, Jake, for asking that question. We'll come back to the show in just a second, but first, 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Like your hair, your net worth, I hope. Your income, your investment portfolio. Again, I hope, I hope. Hey, how about the revenue in the business that you run on Shopify? 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you just started or whether you've been in business for 10 years, whether you're selling accounting textbooks or windshield wiper repair kits, and whether you're selling in person or online. If you're online, know that Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can leverage AI with Shopify Magic, an AI-powered all-star. Now, what I like about Shopify is that it's there for you, whether you are just beginning or whether you are doing your first million in revenue, your first dollar to your first million plus. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. They have award-winning help. And businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Paula, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Paula now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Paula. Our next question comes from Kim. Hey, Paula and Joe. My name is Kim. Thanks for being such a great resource. My company is automatically enrolling all of us employees into, I quote, a fully funded indemnity program combined with a nationwide direct primary care membership, unquote, starting January 1st. This used to be an optional program. I've tried to research and understand how it works, and all I can assume is that it benefits my employer as they are trying to find ways to decrease losses during the pandemic as I work for a nonprofit nursing home rehab facility. Many of my coworkers and I find this very sketchy and concerning that no one is able to explain it to us and that we must fill out a form within 60 days after January 1st to unenroll. I don't agree that they should be able to enroll us without consent. I haven't been able to find much information about this program and its tax implications or potential effect on Social Security income since less is paid out to Social Security each paycheck if you have this plan. Apparently, there's more in the take-home pay, but without explanation of how this happens, we are just provided a generic pay stub example. I understand that this is a type of primary health care plan, but this is an access to our regular employer-provided health plan. Can you please provide some insight? Thank you so much. Kim, thank you so much for asking that question. Joe is our resident workplace expert. I... <laughs> Joe, you've had jobs. That's more than I can say about myself. This area still, though, Paula, is is difficult because, number one, healthcare is not my strong suit either. Um, so when it comes to building a financial plan, a fair amount about healthcare, but I know much more when I'm given a range of options and asked to choose between them. And the frustrating part of this question, which I can clearly here is frustrating for Kim too. She doesn't know enough about it. And sadly, that also means I don't know enough about it. Indemnity plans. The cool thing about indemnity plans is instead of having to go through this network, right? Like a PPO or an HMO network, you can direct your own healthcare and go to almost any doctor or hospital that you want. That part of the indemnity plan is pretty cool. I absolutely love that. I'm in control. I can do what I want. Now, here's the deal, though. The insurance company agrees they're just going to pay a set portion then of that total charge. So you're going to be at risk for a larger percentage in a lot of cases. So it's a trade-off. And have we said this every single one? Paula, every, <laughs> it's all trade-offs. It is. Today is trade-off day and it is a trade-off when using an indemnity plan. I, a, I get any doctor I want. Don't got to go through the maze. I can direct my own insurance 
or direct my own healthcare. However, I'm going to probably pay a bigger portion, but they differ a fair amount. So I think there's two places Kim has to go. First thing is if anybody knows how this works at all, it's HR people. And back when I was with American Express, I would go into companies and help explain how company benefits worked at many Detroit area companies at the time. And they were, there was a huge range, but there was one thing I always knew that human resource people were the people that were directly involved with not only choosing the plan, but also of making sure it's rolled out well, or in this case, it sounds like not that well, right? (laughs) Uh, But if anybody knows, it's going to be somebody in HR and hopefully your HR people are much like the ones that I got to work with. And usually, Paula, they were frustrated because people didn't ask them enough questions. I remember going into many companies where companies had all these benefits and workers would never ask them what benefits they have. And I mean, benefits much like joining a credit union have. In some cases, you could get Costco memberships for less money and nobody knew about it in the company. Uh, Mm. But the HR people did. So I would say that second If you don't trust your HR people, if there's somebody in your area who is a healthcare expert that you can call. So if you look online for a company that reps, not one type of insurance, but lots of different types of insurance, almost like when you're shopping for insurance and you're looking at someplace like a select quote, as an example, where they have 50 different companies they work with, uh, same thing here, but with health insurance, if you can find somebody that does something like that and just have them explain to you the plan that you have and what that really means, I think that's who, who you're looking for. Hmm. So I don't know the answer, but I know Kim where to look. And I think that you need more information. I have no idea why that affects your social security. The other thing, Paula, you've got a lot of cool people listen to this program who are maybe health experts. Right. And and this might be an opportunity to have people in our community call in or help us out. That would be fantastic as well. Exactly. Exactly. So if you go to the Afford Anything community, affordanything.com slash community, you know, this is fundamentally, it, it is an HR question and a benefits question. For us, so Joe, you are a financial planner, like we are good at personal finance. And certainly employee compensation is a related vertical. It's an adjacent vertical to personal finance, but it is not personal finance directly. It is not investing directly. And so while this is an adjacent vertical, it is not directly within our field of specialization. But there are many people in the community, as, as you said, Joe, who are involved in those adjacent verticals and who do work in the fields of those adjacent verticals for a living. So I would absolutely recommend going to affordanything.com slash community because there's a lot of knowledge there. And, and uh, Joe, to what you were saying about resources that are underutilized, your example is the Costco membership that some companies offer that, uh, you know, HR knows about, but employees at the company don't, so they don't take advantage of it. The greatest underutilized asset for Afford Anything is the power of our community. We have incredibly intelligent, very impressive people who are being completely underutilized because they have so much to offer. And many people in this community are happy to offer that their knowledge. They're happy to help others. That's the power of the bonds that form among a group of like-minded individuals who 
share stories and share advice and share tips and talk to one another. So if you're not involved in the community yet, get there. Exactly. (laughs) Our final question today comes from Deva. Hey, Paula. Thanks for your show. Three years ago, after a bad year with my husband's business, and then we had a baby, and so I couldn't run my own business as well. I have a small tax advisory firm. I had to take some time off with the young babe. Anyways, we dug ourselves into some serious debt that we've been able to climb out of the last few years, thank goodness, largely because we bought our first home five years ago and we uh, made sure to buy a personal residence with a rental unit on it. And we were renting out the small cabin on the property and living in the main home. When we got into all this debt, we decided to move in with family and rent both units. And then now upon moving back, we're living in the small cabin, which we ourselves did some improvements to and renting out the main home. My issue is with some really, (laughs) our tenants are just slobs. I mean, it's nasty. Like it's bad up there. There's appliances strewn about the porch in the yard. There's a broken down car. There's, um, we have a greenhouse up there that we used to garden in and it's just full of random things. Now they're getting moldy and gross. They just use it as a storage unit, essentially. They are great, kind people. They've always paid their rent on time. They're low maintenance for us in terms of they don't ask for much. Last year when we renewed their lease, we mentioned like, you know, there's this clause in the lease that says the property needs to be basically in good shape and we need some of these appliances removed, et cetera, because we're hoping to improve the landscaping and maybe paint the home. And they were like, okay, great. Yeah, well, We've been meaning to work on that and, you know, it just hasn't happened and it's just their personality. And of course, we're not going to kick them out with COVID and everything. And, but, you know, you start to worry like what the inside of the house looks like as well. Um, They have pets, they have kids. It's, it's crazy up there. It really is. And we live on a small Island. The property's private. It doesn't bother us visually. We can't see their space up there. But when we go up there to do any repairs or maintenance, we're just like, holy smokes, there's dog crap everywhere. It's just, it's nasty. So what do we do? What language do we provide them with either directly or when we renew their lease in a few months coming up in March, 2021, what type of clause or language do we put on the lease to ensure that the property is in better condition? Thanks so much. Deva, thanks for asking that question. First of all, you're being way too nice and this situation is not okay. Seeing random appliances strewn about in the yard, that is absolutely unacceptable. And that immediately, you you shouldn't be seeing appliances, plural. The moment there is one random appliance that is strewn about in the yard, that immediately should trigger a landlord walkthrough or a property manager walkthrough of the unit. It is normal, acceptable practice, and there's usually a clause in every lease that states that if there are objects in the yard that are not supposed to be there, if there is even something as simple as a camper that is parked on the premises, assuming that the lease explicitly prohibits that, if anything is apparent from the outside of the property that indicates that the property is not being well-maintained, then 
the landlord and or property manager has the right to do a walkthrough of the property in order to inspect the property condition. And of course, the lease is going to state how much advance notice you need to give them. Some leases state 24 hours or 48 hours. But the minute you see any indication that the property may not be well-maintained, that immediately should trigger a landlord walkthrough. So the fact that this has been going on for months now, and the fact that you've said in your voicemail that you don't know what condition the interior of the property is in, you only see the the exterior, that gives me massive, massive, massive concern. Animal fecal matter in the yard is not okay. Appliances in the yard, not okay. Absolutely none of this is acceptable. The minute there is one microwave, I've actually done this before, a tenant left a microwave in the driveway and instantly I contacted the property manager. I said, please contact them right away and give them notice for a walkthrough. She, I think the lease said that we had to give them 24 hours notice. She contacted them that day. And then the next day she was out there doing a walkthrough. You and your tenants have entered into a legally binding contractual agreement with one another in that they agree to pay rent and to keep the home, both interior and exterior, in clean, orderly, well-maintained condition. And in exchange, you agree to provide them with exclusive access to said home, as well as to provide timely repairs and maintenance of that home. You have upheld your end of the agreement. You need to make sure that they are upholding their end of the agreement. You know that they are paying rent on time. That's great. You do not know if they are upholding their end of the agreement in which they promise to keep the home in well-maintained condition. And based on the way that they are maintaining the exterior, well, actually, we know that they are not keeping the home in good condition because of the way that they're maintaining the exterior. That in and of itself right away is a violation of the portion of the lease where they agree to keep the home well-maintained. Now, a messy exterior may not be such a blatant violation that it would warrant termination of the contract, but a terrible interior, that certainly may do so. What are you going to do if they've got animal fecal matter in the interior? What are you going to do if they've been punching holes in the drywall or if they've pulled doors off the hinges? A lease is a contractual agreement, and your job is to do the due diligence to make sure that they are upholding their end of the contractual agreement. And I can already tell you, they are not maintaining their end of it when it comes to the exterior. And so that means two things. Immediately, that the moment that you see a violation of their lease term when it comes to the maintenance of the exterior, the first thing that you do is, number one, you do the due diligence to see how they're treating the interior. Number two, you provide formal written notice that they are required to bring the exterior up to a clean and well-maintained state as per the terms of the lease in X amount of time. And if they do not do so, then they could be subject to fines, they could be subject to penalties, and they could be subject to termination of the lease. Now, whether or not you want, of course, it's a pandemic and you may not want to terminate the lease. I certainly am sympathetic to not wanting to kick anybody out in the middle of a pandemic. But if you're a pushover and you're just going to not enforce the contract, that's only going to make things worse. At a minimum, you need to be providing them with formal written notice that states that they are in violation of the agreement, which they are, and that they need to bring themselves into compliance with the agreement in X amount of time. 
you are both, you and the tenants, are both mutually responsible for upholding certain standards of maintenance and care of the property. You are responsible for your end of that. So if something breaks, your job is to fix it in a timely, prompt manner. If something needs routine maintenance, like gutter cleaning or lawn mowing, or changing out the filters on the HVAC unit, your job is to do that in a periodic manner. And you are upholding, to the best of my knowledge, you are upholding your end of that agreement. You are making sure that the batteries on the smoke detector are being changed out. You are making sure that the filter on the HVAC is being cleaned. You are making sure that all of the routine maintenance on a property is being handled. You are upholding your duty of care and maintenance to the property. They need to do the same. And if they are not, they need written warning from you that they have to. That's the agreement that you're in. Those are the terms of the contract. Now, again, I'm not going to go so far as to tell you to terminate the contract. Like, I'm very, very sympathetic to not wanting to, to kick anybody out in the middle of a pandemic. But that does not give them carte blanche to do whatever and to treat your property with abject disregard, which is, at a minimum, how they're treating the exterior. So this is a serious issue. It needs to be dealt with immediately. I would also... Final thing I'll say about this is I would think very carefully about whether or not you want to renew that lease. You said the lease comes up for renewal in March of 2021, which is this month. We have a about three to four month lead time in between when people submit questions and when we are able to answer those questions on the show. We have a, a backlog of questions that have piled up. So I don't know when this month that lease is coming up for renewal, but I hope that it is in the future rather than in the past. And if it is in the future, if I've, if this message is catching you on time, I strongly hope that you will think about the care requirements that you require from your tenants. Think of it this way. In any other business agreement, if there are two parties that have a short-term contract with one another and one party consistently violates the terms of that contract, then in any business situation, the second party would choose to not renew that contract. If there's a contract between a freelance writer and a magazine, and one of those two parties consistently violates the terms of that contract, either the freelance writer doesn't turn in their work on time, or the magazine doesn't provide clear guidelines and keep sending the article back for a million rewrites, if either party is unhappy with the way that the other party is handling the terms of the agreement, then when that contract comes to an end, either party can say, you know what, this arrangement is not working for me. I did not want to terminate the contract while, while we were in it, but I am, now that it's come to its natural end, I am choosing to not renew. This is not the type of situation that I want to continually be in. Similarly, the relationship between a landlord and a tenant is one of mutual contractual obligation, where each party has a responsibility to the other. And if one party upholds their responsibility and the other party does not, then that is an asymmetric relationship. I will reiterate, I am very sympathetic to not wanting to evict anybody at this time or ever, uh, but particularly at this time, I'm very sympathetic to that. But at a minimum, I would not go into a brand new agreement with someone who has consistently proven themselves 
or consistently demonstrated behavior that indicates that they will not uphold the terms of the new agreement that you are about to enter. That's another way of saying I would strongly hesitate to renew the terms of the lease unless as a condition of that, I mean, if I wanted to be very generous, then as a condition of that renewal, the exterior must be cleaned up and well-maintained. The interior must be spotless. If you do a thorough walkthrough of both the interior and exterior, and you are satisfied with the condition of the property, okay, then we can talk. But if they have not rectified what they've done and brought it up to the standard that, that they moved into, then there's absolutely no grounds for renewal. If it helps, think of yourself as the HOA. An HOA is not going to sit around silently if people are leaving trash out in the yard. Now, I understand that you don't literally have an HOA, but what that means is that you are the HOA. When you're looking around wondering who the HOA is, it's you. So those are some thoughts on the matter. Make sure that any written notice that you give them is in writing. Make sure that there's a copy of it. Send them certified mail if you need to so that you have evidence of providing said written documentation. And best of luck with this. All right, Joe, we did it. We did it. Trade-off day on the Afford Anything podcast. Exactly. Joe, thank you for joining us. Where can people find you if they would like to hear more about your wacky ideas? <laughs> I don't know about wacky ideas, but I do have the greatest money show on earth. We call it because it's a circus every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Paula is a part of that circus on Fridays, and we have a good time. Uh, the Stacky Benjamins podcast. Join us there. That is our show for today. If you would like to discuss this show with members of the Afford Anything community, head to affordanything.com slash community. We have a lively group there. This is held away from the common social media platforms. It's not on Facebook, so you don't have the distraction of other social media noise pulling at you. It's just a, a dedicated community where people can focus on whatever topic they want to discuss, whether it's early retirement or real estate investing. You can find all of that. You can find people to talk about these questions, share stories, ask questions, discuss episodes, all of that's at affordanything.com slash community. If you want to learn the ins and outs of managing real estate investing, I have a course called Your First Rental Property, which will be open for enrollment April 12 through 19, 2021. So next month in April for one week, we will be open for enrollment for our spring 2021 cohort. You can download our free ebook. It's uh, available at affordanything.com slash mistakes. It's our free ebook on seven expensive mistakes that real estate investors commonly make. And if you download that ebook, you'll get all of the knowledge that's contained within that. And you'll also get updates related to this upcoming course. So again, affordanything.com slash mistakes to download the free ebook and to learn more about our upcoming course enrollment. By the way, I am also, as of the time that I'm recording this, I'm under contract on a duplex in Indianapolis. So I just wanted to make that announcement. I had an, three inspections done and it looks like I'm going to be going forward with it. So I'll be closing on that property uh, very soon. You can get updates on that property. Um, actually, if you join the VIP list, if you go to affordanything.com slash mistakes, download the free ebook and I'll be mailing out, uh, I'll be sending out by email updates about 
my latest duplex purchase. So uh, you'll be able to get all of that information, tons of information. Just download this free book and hopefully I'll see you in the course. Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything podcast. Don't forget to head to affordanything.com slash mistakes to learn the ins and outs of the real estate investing world. And I will catch you in our next episode. See you there. Here is an important disclaimer. There's a distinction between financial media and financial advice. Financial media includes everything that you read on the internet, hear on a podcast, see on social media that relates to finance. All of this is financial media. That includes the Afford Anything podcast, this podcast, as well as everything Afford Anything produces. And financial media is not a regulated industry. There are no licensure requirements. There are no mandatory credentials. There's no oversight board or review board. The financial media, including this show, is fundamentally part of the media. And the media is never a substitute for professional advice. That means anytime you make a financial decision or a tax decision or a business decision, anytime you make any type of decision, you should be consulting with licensed credential experts, including but not limited to attorneys, tax professionals, certified financial planners, or certified financial advisors. Always, always, always consult with them before you make any decision. Never use anything in the financial media, and that includes this show, and that includes everything that I say and do. Never use the financial media as a substitute for actual professional advice. All right, there's your disclaimer. Have a great day. Hey, just wanted to let you know that we are doing on Fridays bonus interviews. Those bonus interviews, you can find them on Stereo. If you go to Stereo.com slash Paula Pant, that's S-T-E-R-E-O, Stereo.com slash Paula Pant, download the app and you'll be able to catch our Friday bonus interviews. In the past, we talked to Rich Carey, who owns 30 uh, units, 30 rental property units in Montgomery, Alabama. 20 of which he bought while he was stationed in South Korea with the military. We did an interview with some GameStop investors who purchased GameStop when it was $15 a share. It is currently, as of the time I'm recording this, trading at more than 200 a share. So we chatted with them. And they're mostly index fund investors. So we talked to them about you know, how they uh, learned about it so early on and, and what that did for them and why they made those decisions and what others can learn from it. So those are the kind of interviews that we do. And again, if you head to Stereo.com slash Paula Pant, you will be able to catch our bonus Friday interviews. So see you there.